The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 5th. Today, a questionable election in North Carolina, the dismantling of a federal consumer watchdog, and the state funeral of George H.W. Bush. Hello. Hey, Amy. Can you hear me? Yeah. So, Amy, can you just start by telling me, like, where are you right now? I'm actually in Raleigh. Um, I drove back from Bladen County, which is a rural county about 100 miles south of Raleigh. That's Amy Gardner. She covers national politics for The Post. And she's in North Carolina right now, reporting on this really peculiar case of possible election fraud in a U.S. House race that is still contested nearly a month after the midterms. I spent the weekend in Bladen County interviewing voters and other folks on the ground to try to figure out what was going on. Now I'm back in Raleigh paying attention to the investigation and trying to figure out what direction that investigation is going. The case involves the campaign of Mark Harris, who ran as the Republican candidate in North Carolina's 9th District. When the election results came in, the votes showed that he had a narrow victory of about 900 votes over Democrat Dan McReady. Mark Harris has been elected as congressman of the 9th Congressional District. But then things started to look suspicious. And the North Carolina Board of Elections decided that they would not certify the results of that race. When they declined to certify the results uh, last Tuesday, one of the members of the Board of Elections, a guy named Josh Malcolm, who is from Robinson County, which is in the 9th District, said, you know, something along the lines of, we all know what went on down there, and we need to take a look at it. And everyone was like, what? Amy's been reporting on the focus of the state's investigation, which is absentee ballots. were some odd numbers in uh, the absentee mail-in ballots. Uh, Odd numbers of ballots cast this way in some places, like really high numbers from particular locations, and in other places, really high numbers of ballots that had been requested but not returned. The state board issued some new numbers yesterday that uh, show that a total of 3,400 ballots were requested but not returned across the 9th Congressional District. So in a race where they're separated by only 905 votes, that's potentially difference-making. Wow. So what do they think happened that caused these kind of irregularities? Well, they know that Mark Harris's campaign um, hired a man named Leslie McCray Dallas, Uh, a Bladen County native who has worked on a number of elections over the years and who works on on get-out-the-vote effort. What the investigators are, are looking at is whether Dallas was running an illegal operation, not just to get people to vote, but to take their ballots from them, which is illegal in North Carolina. Only I can submit my absentee ballot or 
uh, someone who is a relative or a guardian if I am elderly or frail or sick or incapacitated in some way. The investigation is looking at whether Dallas hired a small army of workers to go around and collect ballots from voters at their doorsteps. And then that raises the question of whether they did not return ballots that were not for Mark Harris. Dallas's work for other campaigns is well known in Bladen County. He's well known as someone who can deliver absentee ballots for campaigns. In 2016, Mark Harris also ran for the Republican nomination for the uh, 9th Congressional District seat, and he lost. And there was an incredible, uh, curious statistic in that election. The incumbent, Robert Pittenger, got one absentee mail-in ballot in Bladen County. Mark Harris got four. And this other guy who ran that year, Todd Johnson, got over 200. Hmm. Guess who was doing Todd Johnson's mail-in ballot program? McCray Dallas. Hmm. The very next cycle, Mark Harris hires McCray Dallas. And the statistics in the primary this year were just as curious. And so what are the potential outcomes here? One is to determine whether this alleged scheme of mail-in ballot collection went beyond the borders of Bladen County. And then the other important direction that the investigation is going to go in is who knew what McCray Dallas was doing and how high up the organization of Mark Harris's campaign did that knowledge go. There's some circumstantial evidence there that these numbers don't add up, don't make sense statistically, and it raises an enormous question, which is, did Mark Harris know how McCray Dallas was getting and delivering this vote? If it's determined that Mark Harris's campaign or Mark Harris himself did have a direct connection to shicey stuff going on with absentee ballots, what could happen then? The State Board of Elections' principal mandate right now is to certify the election. That's their job. And they're trying to figure out whether they can certify the results or need to consider calling for a new election. So so there's a possibility that this whole election would be scrapped and they'd have to do it the whole thing over again. Absolutely. And so that's one outcome. In addition, there are criminal investigations underway. So while the state board is trying to figure out how to fill the seat, whether to certify these elections or call for a new election, the Wake County District Attorney, which is in Raleigh, and the State Bureau of Investigation, which is sort of like the state police of North Carolina, and the FBI are all investigating what went on in Bladen County. Control of Congress is not what's at stake, right? So for you, like, why is what's happening in the 9th District of North Carolina a big deal? Any kind of actual criminal fraud in elections is a huge deal, and most people will tell you that's the case. There's another reason why this is really important. The Republicans have increasingly been talking about the threat of voter fraud in American elections, all the way up to President Trump. We've also seen a lot of laws passed in states across the country that Republicans claim are directed at preventing that kind of fraud. Really strict voter ID laws that require you to present a particular kind of identification when you go to the polls to vote. But the fraud that is alleged in Bladen County and in the 9th Congressional District isn't voter fraud. It's election fraud. It's election interference. And Republicans haven't really been 
um, talking about that kind of fraud. This whole story has prompted an awful lot of Republicans to go silent about the threat of election fraud. And it's, I think it's created an awkward moment for Republicans to put their money where their mouth is. Democrats in Congress say that they might refuse to seat Mark Harris if North Carolina's election issues aren't resolved by January. After the financial crisis of 2008, the U.S. government created a bureau to protect people from predatory lending practices. It's called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or the CFPB. It was a huge victory for Democrats at the time, but it was and continues to be a point of major political contention. Anti-regulatory advocates like Republicans, they see the CFPB as an example of big government gone too far. So when the White House changed administrations, the future of the bureau became unclear, especially when President Trump named Mick Mulvaney, who was already directing the Office of Management and Budget, to also lead the CFPB. Mick Mulvaney comes in as a fierce critic in his days as a legislator of the CFPB. So there was a lot of skepticism inside the agency. My opinion of the structure of the CFPB has not changed. I still think it's an awful example of a bureaucracy that has gone wrong when it is almost entirely unaccountable to the people that are supposed to oversee it or supposed to pay for it. The Senate has just cleared the way for a new director. But over the year that Mulvaney has led the CFPB, he and his aides have been actively constraining the agency from within, something that The Post has been reporting on. My name is Sean Boberg. I'm a reporter on the investigative staff. I'm Robert O'Hara, and I'm a reporter on the investigative staff as well. So the CFPB was started to try to crack down on the kinds of practices that helped start the recession. After the global financial meltdown, it became clear that lenders, banks, car dealers, and others routinely took advantage of individuals. They used trickery. They used manipulation. They embedded fees into deals that people made. Under the Obama administration, the Bureau imposed billions in fines and billions of dollars in refunds to individual consumers across the country, to millions of them. They were very, very aggressive. And that drove Republicans really around the bend. They hated it. They thought that it represented everything that was wrong with progressive politics and intrusive big government. Democrats, particularly on the left, were very proud of this as an example of the good that they thought government could do on behalf of individuals. But you said that Republicans were not on the same page with that. They were really beside themselves, some of them. Among them was Mick Mulvaney who was a lawmaker from South Carolina, he once called the Bureau a joke. He frankly admitted during a hearing that he wished it didn't exist. This committee does a lot of different things. I don't like the fact that CFPB exists. I'll be perfectly honest with you. But it does. I, John Michael Mulvaney, do solemnly swear. I, John Michael And so Mick Mulvaney comes in as a critic of the Bureau. And we should point out that this is a Bureau that was created to be independent. It had one political appointee under the Obama administration as its director. And so Mick Mulvaney comes in and he hires about a dozen other political appointees and 
virtually puts these appointees in every corner of the agency to create a new network of political direction and oversight. And, and what kinds of actions did these political appointees start taking? Well, right from the start, there was a sort of um, a two-track approach. One track was a series of emails that Mick Mulvaney would send out, which were very happy and upbeat. Thank you for support. He would write, here are some donuts. He's, he gave away donuts on his first day. It was all friendly. How do you know what his email said? We obtained scores of his emails, mostly from outside groups that filed Freedom of Information Act requests. And we obtained other documents from employees who are still there. And those emails helped us create this portrait of how all of this came down. And what emerged, what we saw, is what one employee, what senior guy called this Alice in Wonderland atmosphere in the agency, where Mick Mulvaney is praising the employees and talking about working on behalf of the American public and beating the drum for efficiencies, while at the same time taking these steps that, in effect, handcuffed the career employees from actually enforcing consumer protection laws. And... He also imposed a whole new direction on the agency so that instead of just being a consumer protection agency, it was also now going to protect the businesses that it was supposed to regulate. It was going to protect the marketplace. What are some of the examples of ways that the CFPB under Mulvaney scaled back some of those penalties on, on big institutions? Mulvaney and his political appointees inherited a lot of cases that were investigations that were already underway. And some of those have come to a resolution. And in some of those cases, the fines, the penalties, and the actions that staff who had been working on these cases for months and sometimes years recommended were ultimately undercut. So, for example, there was a payday lender that staff recommended should be fined $11 million. And this was a payday lender that was collecting debts through what CFPB staffers alleged were intimidation and impersonating law enforcement officers. And one of Mulvaney's top staffers actually overruled the staff, dropped some of the complaints, and reduced the fine to $5 million. Wow. $5 million from... $11 million. Jeez. So in another case, a company that was under investigation by CFPB staffers was facing a potential fine of $60 million. And what's notable about this case is that was money that the staff recommended should be returned to consumers, which was a pretty common practice under the prior administration. And Mulvaney's, one of Mulvaney's political appointees scrapped the consumer restitution piece of that and ended up fining the CEO and another official at the lending firm uh, combined $800,000. So they were supposed to give $60 million back to consumers, and they ended up just having to pay $800,000. That was a recommendation and it's obviously a very stark difference. I think it illustrates the different viewpoints between before Trump and the Obama administration and those career officials and the more market-oriented folks that now preside over the agency under Trump. You mentioned that under the previous administration, there were a huge amount of fines that were placed on financial institutions that were determined to have done something that they shouldn't have done. 
Has that changed since Mulvaney came in? There's been a dramatic decline in the number of enforcement actions, something like 75% drop. There's also been a decline in the cases that have gone through the process in the penalties, the fees that are being demanded of the alleged wrongdoers. So, in effect, you have almost a crystallized version of what the Trump administration promised it was going to do when it came into government, which was to limit government's action and limit the bureaucracy which the president claims to loathe and the bureaucracy's ability to use its expertise on behalf of the American people. You've also been reporting particularly on the Fair Lending Office and what's been happening to that part of the CFPB. Yeah, the Fair Lending Office, it's responsible for enforcing anti-discrimination laws. So when you think historically about redlining or lending practices that take advantage of minority groups, the Fair Lending Office's job was to police that area. Mick Mulvaney decided that he wanted to strip it of its enforcement powers and fold that office into his own administrative office and turn it into more of an educational and advocacy group. What does that mean? Well, so what you hear from Mick Mulvaney when he talks about the consumer protection laws is that this is a free marketplace where people need to be empowered to make their own decisions, even if they're bad decisions. So that if we don't enforce, we can educate and people ultimately have to take responsibility for their own bad decisions in the marketplace. That seems extremely counter to what the office was intended to do in the first place. The premise of that argument is almost the exact opposite as under the prior administration. You have a group of people who are devoted to free market principles and who are devoted to limited government. And they're putting that into play here. It's something of a petri dish of those kinds of values. The problem that we found is that there's a lot of collateral damage. First of all, you have uh, career civil servants who've devoted themselves to protecting consumers who are being prevented from doing their jobs. But you also have what seems to be a lack of recognition that many, that is to say millions and millions of consumers, don't have the savvy to protect themselves against large banks and lenders and very calculated schemes, which is the role that this agency was intended to fill. They're filling a gap in governance. So you have a battle going on here that is in effect between two very different views of government and two very different views of consumers. For the people who work inside the CFPB, who've been there you know, from before the time of Mick Mulvaney, what have they been telling you about what it's been like to see a very dramatic shift in the direction of the agency? I think, in a word, it's frustration. Frustration because they feel like they can't do the work that they believe is part of the agency's mission. Frustration that they're sitting, essentially sitting on their hands. And that while they're getting these messages that the agency under the current leadership is hewing more closely to the original intent, they see blockades in just doing their jobs. Some of them told us that they recognize completely that things change under a new administration. And they've expressed a certain acceptance of that automatically. What they can't abide is the sense, as some of them explained it to us, that Mick Mulvaney and his 
appointees have not been honest brokers, that when they offer encouragement, that it's not to be trusted. And when they offer a direction that they sense, and there's some evidence to support this, that in fact, there's a much deeper agenda to thwart the agency. So there's a lot of distrust. If Congress created the CFPB, can they do anything about the agency and what it's doing now? One of the great ironies is that under Trump and a Republican-controlled Congress, there were multiple attempts to scale back the CFPB, and those never got anywhere. Part of the reason is that CFPB and what it does is actually pretty popular politically. And so the Republican-controlled Congress and Trump have not been able or willing to dismantle or scale back the CFPB through legislation. But, but they're still able to do it. Right. Through this, these political appointees, they've been able to achieve some of their aims without taking on a more politically perilous path by trying to do that through legislation. In other words, they've been able to do within what Congress couldn't do going straight on at it. Sean Boberg and Robert O'Hara are investigative reporters with The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. The state funeral for the 41st president was held today at Washington National Cathedral. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? that we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us, or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship. The eulogy was delivered by the president's son, George W. Bush, who talked about his dad's appreciation for cop show reruns, his distaste for vegetables, and his lifelong love for his wife, Barbara. Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding mom's hand again. Former President George H.W. Bush will now make his final trip to Texas before being laid to rest at the Bush Presidential Library alongside his wife, Barbara. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.